William McKinley may be our most charming president. Uh, he comes into office. He is the, the governor. I, I think he's the governor of New York. Um, William McKinley is just known as the nicest guy. Um, there's all these stories of people coming in to ask him for jobs, and then he would say, he would tell them no in a way that made them have to comfort him. He'd be like, I'm so, so sorry that I can't give you that. I, it's just killing me. He also was known for giving people flowers. He was, his, one of his things was he would have a flower in his lapel, and he would like give it to people, and he'd be like, give this to your wife. And people really liked that. Um, William McKinley comes into office at a time when the United States is starting to get involved in the sort of world push towards imperialism. And there's a lot of people saying it's now time. Britain has these colonies all around the world. France has these colonies. Germany has these colonies. They have taken over Africa and split it into all of these pieces. We didn't get a piece of that. They have taken over... Um, well, they're starting to take over China and they're, they're going to divide up China. Um, and there's huge pressure for the U.S. to kind of get in on this. And McKinley comes into office um, saying, I'm not one of those people. I don't want us to get involved in war. And the group of people who are known for pushing this are called jingos. And he says, I'm not going to have any of these jingos in my administration. Um, <clears throat> Part of the, the people, part of the reason why there's a whole group of Americans who think that it's important for us to get involved in imperialism is that there's this whole dialogue that basically the West has been settled at this point. They've, you know, pushed out the Native Americans from everywhere. And we, and we kind of have skipped over that part of the story because the presidents themselves aren't that directly involved. I don't know if that's a good enough excuse. But, but you know, the story of post-Civil War to around 1900 of the American military is often about these Native American wars where they're basically pushing Native Americans off their own land, murdering them often in really brutal ways that target women and children as well. Um, and by 1890, there's this famous speech that's given um, at the Columbian Exposition in 1892 um, which is the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus. It's held in Chicago, which is now um, the second largest city in the United States after New York. And it's this hub of railroads and um, meat packing where like cattle that are driven from the West are butchered in Chicago and then shipped out to cities on the East Coast. And it's part of this huge industrial global economy. And at that basically World's Fair, which is trying to say to the whole world, look at America and our power and our um, prestige. A historian named Frederick Jackson Turner gives a speech in which he talks about the idea that basically the whole reason America has become the most powerful and amazing country that it is, and perhaps the most powerful and amazing country in the world, um, is because we've been continually pushed to settle the frontier. And every time you push into a new area, um, democracy is reinvigorated because people have to figure things out on their own. The economy is reinvigorated. And perhaps most importantly, our manhood is reinvigorated because 
cowboys, people who have to act kind of outside the law and who have to use violence at times, are the male archetype um, that creates a powerful nation. And this gets tied up in a real super patriarchal period in world history, particularly in uh, particularly in American history, I think. Um, but you know, there's also this kind of nationalist and eugenics movement going on worldwide where like German philosophers are talking about the idea of Kampf, culture Kampf, which is like struggle and that, that nations only survive and grow through struggle. And we need to find opportunities for struggle. Um, and in the United States, this takes the form of people kind of freaking out about the frontier being gone. And Frederick Jackson Turner is, He's more academic, but there's a growing movement of people uh, like Buffalo Bill uh, who like romanticized the West. Um, and most notably, this young guy who grew up in um, a wealthy family, pretty sickly in New York City, a guy named Theodore Roosevelt, um, who becomes the secretary of the Navy under William McKinley. And Roosevelt like I said, he's like a rich, sickly kid who becomes obsessed with this same kind of idea of being a Western frontiersman. And he ends up going out to like South Dakota and hunting buffalo and big game. And he gives all these speeches about men need to be men and America cannot be a peaceful nation. We need to be a nation of war because that is what will make us a great nation. And if we stand by other superior races... And he uses that direct kind of language. Superior races will seize this opportunity from us, right? <clears throat> and um, he's super young for the job that he has. I think he's in his late 30s when he becomes Secretary of the Navy under William McKinley. And he becomes the leader of the kind of jingo movement within the McKinley administration. And Congress is very in line with this kind of Roosevelt feeling. Um, and it becomes clear that there are going to be some opportunities for the United States to seize some colonies, specifically because Spain is um, losing control of a couple of its colonies. Um, Cuba, uh, which the United States had had some designs on for a long time. In the pre-Civil War era, a lot of the proponents of slavery thought, let's take over Cuba. And really the only reason that it didn't happen then was because the opponents of slavery couldn't get on board with taking on this new state, which would have been clearly a slave state. Um, but the Cubans themselves have started resisting against Spanish um, aggression uh, or have been resisting against Spanish occupation. And they have their own nationalism and they're fighting for ind the Cuban independence movement. Um, and... The Monroe Doctrine, if you remember from James Monroe, says that the United States basically will not tolerate Europeans interfering anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. And Cuba's been kind of an asterisk on that because it held on as a Spanish colony a way longer than, you know, Mexico, Argentina, all these other places that broke off in the early 1800s. But that becomes a like further justification for why the U.S. should should intervene in this case and should intervene on the side of the Cubans and perhaps should also push that a little bit farther and maybe to actually take it over. Um, 
And meanwhile, in the Pacific Ocean, the Philippines, um, another Spanish colony is also rebelling against Spanish control. So there's a movement that says, it's kind of related to the Roosevelt, like we need to be strong. It's like, we also have to have a really strong Navy. It's not surprising that the guy who is so obsessed with like bringing us to war was the secretary of the Navy because the most popular kind of book about the military at the time was this book that argued um, that all great empires were ultimately naval empires from the Roman empire to the British empire and in the future to the American empire. And we needed to be able to control passages for trade so that we could push our economy forward. And in addition to the kind of cultural justification for why we need to take over more areas, there's also this economic justification, which is based in the idea of overproduction, which is basically that we have these factories that have become so powerful and efficient that they make more than we even need. And so therefore, unless we want to start cutting people's jobs and seeing the economy fall apart, we need to find places where people will buy our goods. And in a lot of countries in the world who are trying to develop, um, you know, they have tariffs and things in place to try to make it so that their own factories will work. And most notably, um, places like Japan and China um, have continually blocked outside forces from bringing in um, their goods. Now, the European powers come into China and try to start divvying up the land basically the same way um, that they did in Africa. And the U.S. ends up making an argument that says, hey, let's not divide it up. Instead, let's make a deal where China has to accept free trade from all of our countries and then let the best economy win, which has this idealism to it that's like, we're going to not solve things through violence, we're going to solve it through trade. But it's also just a shrewd move for the United States, which is a really powerful economy, but doesn't have a powerful, especially army. Um, so there's no way that they're going to win in that situation. But through some skillful diplomacy where they play the European powers off each other, they accept this policy that's called the open door policy. Um, and in part, this is helped out by the fact that there is a navy in the Pacific that's kind of ready to move in. And it's led by uh, a guy named Dewey. And basically, McKinley has said, I don't want to get involved in the Philippines. I don't want to get involved in Cuba. But the pressure is becoming huge from his Republicans and others in Congress and from his own cabinet. So Theodore Roosevelt is pushing openly for war. The economy wants there to be colonies. And wants there to be war. And a new group of people who are very powerful, the mass media, want there to be war. There's what's known as the newspaper war between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, who own these giant systems of newspapers. Because now it's not just like you have a local paper. Like William Randolph Hearst owns papers coast to coast. And not only do you need war to help provide goods, you also need war to provide news stories. And this is a time period when newspapers are huge. The, the newspaper consumption was very common for people to buy multiple newspapers and to have morning papers and evening papers in their house. And so that makes the people who publish these newspapers incredibly powerful. And William Randolph Hearst is a multimillionaire um, who becomes obsessed with power and ultimately 
runs for president himself and just fails. And that becomes the plot of the movie Citizen Kane. Um, but at this time, what he's obsessed with is the idea that if there's a war with Spain, it's going to be great for the news. And so he sends his photographer down to Cuba and he says, I want you to take pictures of the war. And supposedly the photographer says, what war? And he says, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. And so there is no war. The president says he doesn't want there to be a war. But for weeks and weeks, the newspaper is just talking about how terrible Spain is and how the United States is almost ready to go to war. And eventually what happens is McKinley is convinced to send a warship down to kind of um, supposedly to just monitor things in Cuba. But we now know that it was full of weapons Um, and perfect timing. That ship randomly blows up. And almost everyone on board is killed. It's called the USS Maine. Because there's so many weapons on it. So there's a lot of disagreement about why exactly it blew up. There's no question that there were weapons in it. Um, It might have hit a mine. Some people think that there was just an accidental explosion. What historians agree on is that Spain did not directly blow it up. They didn't shoot it or anything. But the story in the newspapers is Spain blew up our ship. Oh, time to go to war with Spain. And people are, the the phrase is, remember the Maine. It's like, remember the Alamo. In fact, it's probably a direct takeoff of remember the Alamo, which motivated people in the Mexican War. Um, Another war that we undertook because we really basically wanted to come up with an excuse to take over territory. And Theodore Roosevelt resigns from being the uh, Secretary of the Navy and decides to literally go into battle himself. And we don't have an army, so he forms like a group, or we don't have a big army. Uh, He forms like a kind of informal cavalry that is made up of all volunteers, some of whom are like poor immigrants, some of whom are like Ivy League guys, and they're all obsessed with their manhood, and they're going to go down to Spain, and they're going to win this war, and they call themselves the Rough Riders, which is a name that they take from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. So it's like life imitates art. And this is sort of like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show because they bring the photographers and the filmmakers to just watch this whole thing happening. And this young guy, Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, how crazy is it for a guy who's like in the cabinet to quit and join the war? Can you imagine if like Steve Bannon was like, I'm going to Afghanistan and I'm going to shoot the Taliban myself, you know? But it's also very romantic and exciting. He loved hunting. He loved, he loved this new sport called football. And he was part of an organization that tried to push football um, as like a sport that should be taught at every school because he felt like that boys were becoming weak. And there's a great anecdote that, William Mc, that Roosevelt made William McKinley go to a football game with him. And McKinley said he watched the game. And at the end, he was like, I didn't see any game. I just saw two group of people fighting and then someone left and then like everyone left. And that kind of shows the difference between McKinley, who's this like really nice guy who gives people flowers, you know, and his administration, which is starting to be controlled by some of the most like amped up dudes of all time. Just cause I want to also say that William McKinley really loved his wife, Ida. She had seizures uh, a lot and he was known for just being very graceful about um, helping when she was having seizures at like state dinners. He would like be talking. He was just he wouldn't make a big deal of it. He would just be talking, 
to the person and then he would take a napkin and he would put it over her face while she was having the seizure and he would keep talking and then when she was done having the seizure he would take it off such a sweetie William McKinley. That is so weird. Yeah. But uh, he gets pulled into this whole Spanish-American war thing by the Jingos. Um, Can't he just say, like, this is not happening, this is a conspiracy plotted by the newspapers to sell... Well, first of all, nobody really knows why the Maine gets blown up, but um, he does, at the beginning, try to speak out against it and say, we're not going to do this, but then the public is so... Through a combination of politicians and the press, the public is so pro-war that eventually he kind of gets dragged into it. And, sincerely or not sincerely, starts talking like it, too. He starts support, and, and he starts speaking out. There are people who are strongly anti-war in the Democratic Party, um, like William Jennings Bryan, uh, who becomes famous because of the silver thing that we're not going to talk about. Um, but also is part of a group of people who say America should not be an imperialist nation. We should not take over other countries. And eventually McKinley says, nope, we're going to do it. And um, the short version of the Spanish-American War is we just totally take over very quickly. Spain collapses. Hands over Cuba to the people of Cuba uh, without any money. Um, And the United States then... And uh, Theodore Roosevelt is part of the Rough Riders, and they they ride their horses up the San Juan Hill, and it's all in the newspapers, and everyone loves Theodore Roosevelt. And um, meanwhile, in the meanwhile, we take over Hawaii also, um, and a bunch of islands out there. Which again, today we we think of Spanish American War as like that's eh, one of those wars that's not that important, and and then we walk around and we're like, huh, isn't it? Fun, or isn't it weird that we have this state that's really, really far away from the rest of the states? And, haha, you know, Guam is part of the United States. Do you know Midway Island is part of the United States? Why is there American Samoa? Isn't that weird? And it's like, no, it was taken as a colonial power the way that other countries took over, like India and South Africa. But we've, like, erased this from our memory. It's really important, especially to the people who live there. Okay. So nice old William McKinley gets dragged into imperialism. Um, and I just feel like I need to pause to say that Cuba gets forced to accept basically a deal where they get to rule themselves. But anytime the United States doesn't like their government, we're allowed to interfere. It's literally in their constitution because the U.S. didn't pull its military out until they um, signed that, which... This was their revolution, and the U.S. just gets involved. Anyway, in the Philippines, um, there's a long and really bloody conflict that the United States carries out in which tens of thousands of Filipinos are killed by the U.S. in trying to take control of the Philippines. And many of it, the justifications are similar to the ones that were used against Native Americans, um, that they're an inferior race, that they can't actually lead themselves, that they're uncivilized, and... Um, that justifies it. And the Philippines might still be part of the United States or a territory of it, which is our way of saying colony, uh, if the Japanese hadn't taken it from us during World War II. And then after World War II, they had to be independent. Puerto Rico, taken during the Spanish-American War, still controlled by the United States, but not allowed to be a state. Why are they not allowed to be a state? 
because they're all Latino, and if they were allowed to become a state, then um, they would send two Democratic senators every single time, and so you can't get a majority of people to support it. Um, anyway, the war happens, and William McKinley runs for re-election. He's popular, but one of the reasons he's popular is because he decides to choose for his vice president everybody's favorite jingo, Teddy Roosevelt, who is the youngest um, vice president. He's 40. So Teddy Roosevelt gets to be vice president, and they run for re-election, and um, William McKinley becomes more of an imperialist, and he actually goes to another uh, kind of World's Fair exposition in Buffalo to give a speech um, about how imperialism is actually okay. Um, and then he is waiting in line to shake hands, and he was also famous for giving really good handshakes. <laughs> People would wait for, like, hours to shake his hand, and, like, I read a description of, like, what it felt like to shake hands with William McKinley, and he had to be really strategic about it because otherwise it would hurt his hand. Um, McKinley's at this exposition, and there's another event, and they say, and, he, and, and his advisors are like, don't go, we can't have you shake that many people's hands, and besides, it's not going to be that safe. And he says, everyone loves me, no one wants to hurt me. And then he goes and he gets shot. And, uh, as, and, and here's, here's the William McKinley, like, just to fit into my whole story of who William McKinley is. So he gets shot by an anarchist. Um, and anarchists are... A political movement at this time that are really freaked out by how powerful these governments have become all over the world and are also are in their own, that's like their own version of socialism, like anti the established power. And so this guy who's a, a, a Polish immigrant, who's a anarchist, shoots McKinley immediately the whole like the secret service and a bunch of other people jump on this guy and are like holding him down and supposedly as they're holding him down mckinley says don't hurt him <laughs> and then he says be careful how you tell my wife um and he lives a little while longer long enough oh he had some really nice last words but i don't remember what they are 